DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Coming up 9 o'clock this morning, we're going to be joined by Norm Chow, former Utah and BYU assistant coach, offensive coordinator. Worked for the XFL. They just seized operations. He's going to join us at 9 o'clock. We'll catch up with him. We haven't talked with him since he uh, took the XFL job. Time right now to talk to our basketball insider, Steve Cleveland. Sprint. Steve joins us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Make it safe and easy to get what you need online with Sprint. You can visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Steve, good morning. Good morning. So, Steve, a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, drama. The Rudy Gobert, uh, Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell situation with uh, uh, Friday in the Athletic. There was uh, and there were quotes from Joe Ingles, who had his name on his quotes, you know, saying it's up to those guys, you know, to work it out. And then there was an unnamed person who said it's uh, it's unsalvageable. And then we saw Rudy over the weekend in an Instagram live interview say that they hadn't talked in a while, but now they have, and they both want to win a championship. And so, you know, it's, even marriages aren't perfect, he pointed out. When you hear all this, man, there's a lot of different things to uh, think about if you're, a, if you're a coach or a GM. If you try to hop in their chair, what do you come up with? Well, I mean, the first thing I would do was sit down and talk with them. And, and that I don't know, you know, if that's been, a, I don't know what the circumstances are. Both those guys in Utah right now, or are they get back at home? Uh, the story said that Donovan went home to New York for the quarantine, but it wasn't clear. I'm not clear where he is right now yeah. after that 14 I mean, days. I mean, the first thing you've got to do uh, as a coach or a parent or anyone is you've got to go to, to the problem and see what the source is and what the circumstances are. And, and then once you find out how they feel and what the circumstances are, you know, you, you talk about what has to happen and, and what, what, what have you guys done in terms of, trying to work this thing out. And I, I mean, I've read what you've read a little bit and it's, it's hard to completely understand the details of the whole thing. Cause I think it's kind of a personal thing, but, uh, that's the first thing you do. And, uh, you, you find out where they're at personally, where maybe their feelings have been hurt or where they feel like, uh, you know, things have been said that, uh, were inappropriate and inappropriate for teammates, inappropriate for friends. And, you know, they're friends before this. <laughs> you know, I mean, it wasn't like I didn't think that there was a rift between the two of these young men prior to this incident. They seemed to always get along well and be on the same page, uh, all-stars together. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to sit down and talk to them and find out where the certain, where it lies. And, uh, I mean, that's the only thing you can do. I mean, I, it's unfortunate. Uh, and I don't have enough inside knowledge to understand the why of this thing. I mean, I understand how it's really a scary thing, the idea that they both had that virus. From what I've been told, they're both doing well and they're healthy and uh, they're through it. That's the case with most young people who get it. But uh, there must have been something, you know, I mean, I watched the videos. You guys are there. And I was under the assumption that when Rudy did that rather immature thing, that he had no idea he had the virus, and it was just an immature act uh, on his part. And that when he did, in fact, find out that he had it, he recognized that that was inappropriate. And to my knowledge, I thought he donated a chunk of money and came out and apologized. And 
to me, that, it's, that seems like that'd be good enough. But this may be more than just the virus. Maybe it's other things were said, implied, who knows. But you got to get together and talk it out. Do you think there was any frustration that was born actually on the basketball court, and this might have been somewhat of a tipping point, so the point being it started before? Well, I, it's really, really hard for me just knowing and watching these two young men who seem to be so positive. There's so much positive energy that comes from the two of them that there might have been something else that was part of this. And, and this was the tipping point because, again, you're, you all are there every day. You're watching it. You're talking to him. Uh, I guess my question for the two of you would be, have you ever seen a time when they didn't get along beyond the normal competitiveness of trying to win games and the disappointment of not playing well? I've just not seen it publicly. And, I'm, again, I'm not around them privately, but uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me, to be honest with you. And uh, so as a coach, that'd be the first thing I'd want to get to. And, okay, what's going on here? What's the source of this problem? Is this about the coronavirus or is this about something else? And let's get it fixed and get on the same page because there's the possibility we could get back together here and we want to have everything right if that opportunity comes. So as far as having seen something, I would say no. I think that they are uh, professional. I think that this generation of athlete is very savvy to, you know, when you're at a game, there are cameras everywhere. So you wouldn't see anything because there isn't anything. But if there was something, you still wouldn't see anything. So to the question, did you see anything? No, I didn't. I think okay. that when Rudy in the first 10 games of the year came out and said he needed more shots and you know he uh, set the dunk record a year ago and he needs to be part of the offense, I think that's always a red flag. I think if you're on a church team or a rec team, that's a red flag. I think if you're in the NBA, that's a red flag. And I think that's a red flag everywhere in between in high school and college. When somebody starts yeah. demanding shots, I think everybody else on the other team, even guys who aren't playing, who aren't going to lose any shots, are looking at him like, Really? Well, you got a high opinion of you. I think that's just the nature of the sport. So I think that can be a problem. And it's always struck me as odd, and it's never completely addressed, and it's usually talked around. But it has always struck me as odd that early in games, they run two post-up plays for Rudy. Because I think the odds of those plays, and I don't have the math on them, but it can't be good. It's just the points per possession on that. There's too many turnovers. He doesn't finish shots. He gets fouled. He goes one for two. They only do it early in the game, and it looks to me like it's kind of, okay, we'll run a couple things for you, and if you've got an advantage and can deliver it, we'll keep doing it. But if you don't, then we'll go away from it. And and having watched their games night after night, that's you know what I see. Now, nobody wants to just come out and say, hey, we're trying to pacify one of our star players, but how does it look? That's how it looks to me, and I think that would sit poorly, and I've always associated that with what Rudy said in the first 10 games. So that, well, if, there's a real, if there's a real component to this, as far as I know, that would be it. But there's a lot of interactions behind the scenes, and you know this because you're on teams, how much guys practice together, uh, how much guys uh, are in the weight room together, how much guys travel together. You know, we're not privy to all that stuff. What there is there is the great unknown. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I did this long enough to know that there were guys that occasionally that uh, felt like, and, and, and sometimes it's not just the players, but it's actually assistant coaches or people that are connected. You know, these guys are connected. They have their 
workout coaches. They have the assistant coaches that they're probably close to, maybe guys that are over the bigs, you know, all of those kinds of things. And things like that do surface. And, and typically you can talk those things out. And guys are going, listen, I'd like to get more touches. You know, I don't feel like I, I can do this or do that. You know, and, and I, I've watched Rudy play a number of times, and usually he needs angles to the rim, and, and he's not creating shots off a jump shot. I mean, he's got to get to the basket. And if you stay between him and the basket, you got he's got to shoot over you and through you. And uh, those are never usually easy shots. Obviously, he's going to get rebound dunks and those kinds of things. But I've watched him play a lot. I, I, I haven't seen anything created outside of about two or three feet that didn't come from a dump off or come from a direct angle shot. So, uh, and, and he should want to get better. He should want to develop the ability to knock a 17-foot shot down. I mean, these are all things, but those are things you do in the off season. Those aren't things we start experimenting with halfway through the season. You know, you keep working on those things. And uh, But, I mean, I've been in situations as a coach where, you know, a kid wanted again. So, you know, you can sometimes out of timeouts, dead ball situations are great opportunities to run a quick hitter, to run some kind of isolation set, and uh, put the ball in his hands. Well, we, we've all done that as coaches to get guys going, to get their confidence up. But typically you do it for guys that are scorers that are struggling, and rather than have them take the first two or three shots of a game, which are the most difficult, get it in a flow, get it on a dead ball, get it on a timeout, get them where there's an isolation where they can go to their strengths. So it's not like that doesn't take place in teams. That happens all the time. But you're right. Uh, when you have two or three or four different things that start coming up, it, you do tend to think, okay, this might be more than just shots. Maybe it's a personality conflict. Uh, you know, maybe one of them's thinking that, uh, you know, my role needs to change or we're not, a, you know, they, they had some struggles for, for a long while there during the course of the year where they were losing games they shouldn't lose. And, uh, you know, to, to me, most everybody took responsibility for it. Every time I heard an interview, the coaching staff, players, they were all pretty accountable. It wasn't somebody I, – I never really heard pointing fingers or little unsaid things that, man, he's shooting too much. Uh, I, I, I never saw it. I never saw evidence of that. But certainly uh, you do those things all the time to try to get guys going. And, and you know, it, it sounds like, well, you're trying to keep them happy. Well, sometimes if you can call three or four things for a guy – in his mindset, because you don't know who's in his ear, you know, is it his mother? Is it a former coach? Is it his best friend? Is it his agent? Uh, and you, as a coaching staff, you got, you know, you obviously got to get to the bottom of all of that. But it's not uncommon to help a guy get out of a slump or help a guy that maybe feels like he's not as wanted or needed to get him shots. And uh, but a lot of times, I try to do those things out of dead balls, timeouts, so that we knew specifically what's going to happen. And go for it. The beginning of the game is not the time to run isolation guys that aren't scores. <laughs> that that's you know let's get in the flow of the game and make those things happen. So those are my thoughts on that. Hopefully, hopefully they can uh, both be mature enough to uh, to work through these things. I wanted to hit you up a little bit on the college situation. Uh, a week or so ago, HBO has Sean Miller. You know, he's not saying I will play, I will pay player X X amount of dollars, but he's talking about it. Obviously, and there's conversation there, and you hear his voice. And you know, the FBI has been involved. We still haven't really seen any sanctions on head coaches. Obviously, some assistant coaches have been in some serious trouble. 
But I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, because of the the talent difference that one individual can make on a ball club in college basketball, I'm wondering if we will ever get to the point or what can be done to get to the point to clean this stuff up. Well, I think we're all being really naive and putting our head in the sand if we think that stuff isn't happening or hasn't been happening for a long time. And, you know, no coach, uh, probably not many administrators want to point fingers to anybody because everybody, not necessarily just, I'm not talking about money in all situations, but everybody has done things inappropriately, made mistakes sometimes, not knowingly do it. So no one's, no one's perfect here. Uh, you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with parents, Hey, you coaches, high school coaches, there's so many conversations. And one of the big responsibilities of a head coach is to know and have a clear, really clear understanding about here's, you know, you take a test at the beginning of the year, but these are things that have to be talked about in your staff meetings, how you're represented. And in the indictment of some of these head coaches and, and the, the idea that maybe they were involved in these things, I've seen a little bit of the stuff uh, as, as it relates to it. Uh, you know what, this this needs to get fixed. And the only really way to get fixed is to, and, and, and again, trying to prove something in a court of law when it's a he said, she said thing, and as good as attorneys are today, you know, they don't have real evidence. It's going to be really hard to find an indictment on a head coach who hasn't really said something that was specific to giving money or doing it. But the the idea that, anybody in this world in Arizona or anybody else that doesn't think that inappropriate things haven't been going on for a long time has got their head in the sand. Because uh, there, there, there are things going on. And I, I, I was in the business long enough as a, as a junior college coach where I saw lots of things, and, and certainly as a Division One coach. So uh, I, I think the NCAA gets maligned for a lot of things. And uh, but at the end of the day, you, you do have to have uh, a code of ethics here. You, you do have to uh, follow up on leads. There, ha- there has to be an investigative arm of the NCAA because it, it is an unfair advantage. I mean, and the, the irony of this is it, it's, it's, the, it's the elite, you know, elite teams in the country who are doing it to probably stay as competitive as they can. But uh, it, it's not like the low-bid majors are, are doing this. There's infractions going on at every level. But when we're talking about money and shoe contracts, those, those are the top 20, 25, 30 teams in the country that are dealing with that kind of money. And uh, there, there just needs to be a better way to monitor it. And, uh, and, and certainly it, we live in a transparent world. And whether it's in Twitter or social media or Facebook or whatever, Everybody is saying and talking and doing things, and uh, it's, it's, it is difficult to kind of figure out where the truth lies. But uh, and I'm not here to point fingers at anybody, but it would be really naive of any of us to think that that's not going on. And I'm not saying it's going on at a huge level. Like if there's 370 you know, schools, you know, to malign 300 and 300 schools that have never really had major infractions other than mistakes with phone calls or, you know, a lot of the things that used to be infractions were making inappropriate calls and doing those kind of things. Most of those things have been wiped off the books and it's, uh, they've made it a lot easier to make contact with guys. But when you're talking about money and you're talking about that, that kind of thing, 
Uh, we're talking about a small percentage of schools, but it still needs to be dealt with, especially when there are many of them are top 30, top 40, top 50 teams in the country. When you hear that Abel Porter is leaving Utah State, a former walk-on who started every game last year, averaged about five and a half points, he's going to Ohio State. And we hear Matt Van Komen is transferring from Utah to St. Mary's. What was your reaction when you heard those? What kind of impact can those guys have at that school, those schools? Man, I, you know what? I, 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 it's not like I watched all of their games, but, uh, I mean, they'll be better in those situations because they've got experience. They'll have an opportunity to play. But uh, it, it, it wasn't like they were killing it uh, in, in either place that they were at. So maybe, uh, again, it's a connection. It's a family situation. It's a high school situation where there's a coach that they see an upside. Uh, are both of them going to have to sit? Uh, so Abel Porter's a grad transfer. He can play right away. Yeah. He's going to be okay. needed because they had a guy transfer that they didn't expect. So I think they'll – I mean, it's Ohio State, so they'll bring in a freshman who who can play and will want to play, but they'll need, you know, kind of the veteran studying hand. I think it's how they view him from what I've read. Yeah. And then there's a – the NCAA's got to decide what's going to happen. They're, they could be changing the rule here. So Van Komen yeah. might get to play right away. Now, he might have to redshirt a year and he could appeal, but if the rule gets changed this summer, then he'd get to play right away. Right, and I and it did seem like that's probably the direction they were going to go before the whole COVID thing hit us. So uh, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, anytime you got a big like that, you 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 figure there's an upside, you know. But I I mean, the thing about it is that uh, they had guys there already. I mean, and uh, you, you know, you're, you're you got you've got freshmen and sophomores ahead of them that are farther along and. I mean, you can only have so many bigs. I mean, it's nice. To, it's hard to stockpile a bunch of six, eleven, seven foot guys when, in a lot of times, there's only room for one, maybe two. And uh, that didn't surprise me at all, to be honest with you. And I don't think it's really going to impact the program at all. It's probably going to make somebody else better. But they've got they've got bigs that are very capable. And uh, I think it was just a, a situation where you got too many bigs and. Uh, and you're not gonna you're not gonna play three or four bigs. I mean, you're usually gonna play two, and half the time you go small and play one. So I think he kind of saw the handwriting on the wall. I, I don't think that uh, I don't blame. I mean, I, I, I can see where he'd want to do that and go with somewhere where he has a chance to play 20 minutes a game uh, as a sophomore. But I mean, he's got a lot of things he's got to get better at, and and, and the, the way to get better is to play. And I just didn't see him playing in the next year or two there. That. Those things happen all the time, and uh, and I watched him play enough to know that he has a, a ceiling and he can he can impact games. But he wasn't ready to do that as a freshman. How taxing would it be to be a college coach now? You have to recruit players to your program, and then when you're they're in your program, you have to keep re-recruiting them to stay. Really, really challenging, and. Uh, I think that the whole culture of college basketball has changed in that way. And especially now, now with the new transfer rule, and I'm assuming it's going to be a one-time thing for a young man or a young woman, but at the, the circumstances now is that when you recruit somebody, and you do, you spend a lot of time with those people and with their families and their coaches and everybody that's connected to that young man. And, uh, and and I don't want to say promises are made, but opportunities are talked about a lot in terms of their development and where they're going to go from here and there. 
and and knowing that once they get there, and we talk, we've talked about this a little bit, is you can't underestimate the ability of a guy that maybe was a walk-on or maybe has been in the program and, and he makes great strides. And especially for freshmen coming in, when the, there's such expectations from the player, the parents, the coaches, everybody connected to that young man. And when they get there and all of a sudden it doesn't look, it doesn't feel like the recruiting trip and all the nice things that they said, you know, now immediately they, they can see the handwriting on the wall. I mean, there's not a young man that doesn't, if they were going to ask themselves honestly, says, wow, I'm going to have a hard time playing here. He, he's better than I thought he was. And you can, you know, you, between summer and the fall and the season, in a year, you can kind of figure out really quickly where I am and where I belong. And, and because of the lack of patience and the kind of the, the whole attitude of I want it now and I want it immediately and I want to have my opportunity, that, you know, that doesn't sound a lot like guys that want to be a part of a team and help something grow. It, it, it is a really legitimate thing that sometimes guys get recruited Number one, coaches make mistakes. Number two, younger players or older players develop quicker. And, and all, of a guy, all of a sudden there's an odd guy out because he's not quite ready to play in that system or not quite ready to play because they have so much depth. So it does make sense to me that you allow guys to do it, but I have no way uh, that would have been really difficult to coach in where guys are coming and going. And, and I think it's going to be a situation where it's not that big a deal anymore because – that's fine. He leaves. I'll find another one. If, if there's no transfer, you know, there's no sitting out anymore. The, all of a sudden, you take that accountability piece out, where they have to really make sure now that you know we got to make the right decision here. But I think we can all understand how these things happen. But it would be challenging. Uh, the, the good news is that you can try to go and find somebody. And if you've got a good program and you've got great facilities and a great fan base, it's much easier to get transfers. And uh, I, I think we've watched this long enough now to know that when you can go ahead and get guys that are juniors or seniors or grad transfers, they are always better than a new freshman coming in and or maybe a freshman or a sophomore that hasn't played much. Uh, you, you cannot <clears throat> underestimate the value of a young man that's played in 50 or 60 or 80 games and the confidence level that they're going to have in the immediate impact that they can have. So who doesn't want grad transfer? Who doesn't want guys that are, you know, juniors that have been in a program and understand what travel's like and, and have dealt with adversity? The, you know, I, I mean, that's going to become a market. I mean, for mid-majors, I started looking the other day. I saw on, uh, on the ESPN app, they listed 150 kids that were either going to be ready to play, that had to sit a semester or sit a year. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And I don't know how many kids are in the portal right now or have been, but uh, that's, that's a new dynamic in college basketball is that working that system. And if you are a mid-major or you, even a, a, a P5 conference where you're in the bottom half, I'm looking for transfers all the time because that's how I'm going to get better because I can't get the blue-chip guy, but – my guy that's played three years at UC Santa Barbara and every 17 a game comes in here as a senior, he's every bit as good as that freshman, unless the guy's a pro and a top, you know, he's a lottery pick. But you're going to always take the guy from Santa Barbara if, if you have a chance. 
because it makes you competitive immediately. Well, that depresses me. You didn't have to pick UC Santa Barbara, Steve. I mean, that seems personal, but whatever. All right, Steve, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. All right, man. See you guys.